Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. This is a little podcast that I've been uh, putting together over the last while where I like to talk about all things investing, where I get to share with you some of my thoughts, takes, and perspectives, and other people's perspectives about what's going on in the, uh, in the stock market, and hopefully give you some nuggets of information that you can take away and apply to your own personal investing decision. Ultimately, hopefully, you'll be able to make better investment decisions. My name is Amin Reina, and I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And as an investment coach, what I try to do is I try to help people who want to become more financially independent. The problem is when people start talking about investing or you know, wanting to get into investing, they, they either freeze, they get frustrated, intimidated, or confused by the whole investing process. They either don't know where to start if they're new to investing or they've been investing for a long time, but just, you know, just aren't getting any traction with their portfolios. So what I do as an investment coach is, is I teach people, uh, I engage with them on how to make more educated and ultimately more successful investment decisions so that they can achieve a certain level of freedom and uh, financial freedom in their lives and achieve it with confidence. So today, today is, uh, I want to talk about um, financial literacy. And this is the first in a two-part series about financial literacy. And I think one of the reasons I got into doing what I'm doing right now, being an investment coach and opening uh, my own practice, had a lot to do with financial literacy. I thought that when I started way back, uh, you know, almost five, six years ago now, uh, if I could teach people how to make better investment decisions um, and improve people's financial literacy, then then they're going to make good investment decisions and their chances of achieving financial success are, are greater um, and become and ultimately they'll become a better, a, a more successful investor. Um, and that's really what drove me to to do what I'm doing, what I've what I started and what I what I continuously am doing, is being more instead of you know, an analyst in a sense, but be more of an educator. And I feel, I think that's where I see myself being able to help people better, um, giving them a, a better shot at achieving certain level of financial freedom. Um, so financial literacy was, was a big driver of that. And I've always been, you know, when I started, I've always was a, was a big supporter of financial literacy programs, especially, uh, you know, teaching in schools. Like intuitively, I thought that's the best place where you should teach people about money is in schools, where you, you, you get it at, at a young age and then it kind of sticks with you and it evolves with you. That's what made, it made sense to me. And I always thought that was the right thing to do. But what's happened is, you know, since I've embarked on this, uh, you know, I've been out there and teaching and talking to people and working with people is I came to I've come to a bit of a realization or sort of an aha moment. I've written about this in the past. And essentially what I feel is that, you know, all these financial literacy programs out there, you know, they're done with the utmost and noble and good intentions. They don't work. And we have seen, I have seen literally a revolving door of all kinds of different type of you know, initiatives. Some of them are government sponsored and some of them are sponsored by the financial services industry, the banks and the brokerages. They've, we see them all over the place. And 
often they start off with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, and then they just kind of, you know, fritter away in obscurity. Uh, and they don't work. And there's empirical evidence to show that it doesn't work. Um, you know, in, here in Canada, um, I don't know a lot of people know about it, but we actually have uh, somebody that's been appointed to be a financial literacy commissioner. And so, like, we have, like, a financial literacy czar in this country, and I don't know how many people know about it, and basically their job is to go out there and promote financial literacy and promote people taking control of their financial destiny and becoming more literate. Um, so we actually have somebody out there who's kind of that ambassador out there. Again, all done with good intentions, but I don't know, for whatever reason, and I've talked about it, is uh, it just doesn't stick. It doesn't work. So... Why am I talking about all this? Well, a little while ago, I came across um, yet another report um, by the Ontario Securities Commission and their latest attempt to figure out why people have a hard time investing and not interested in investing. And they target really specifically the millennial side, the millennial crowd. And so they put together or commissioned this literally 42-page report and brought in a whole bunch of consultants and a whole bunch of you know, personal finance thought leaders, um, bloggers, media people. And what they try to do is try to answer a question about why people, and more specifically, why millennials are not investing. Apparently, millennials are not investing. And it's trying to give financial institutions some advice and some guidance on how they can engage with millennials to get them to invest. And so that's what I really want to talk about today. I want to talk about this report. It's a two-part thing. I want to talk about the report today. And in the next episode, I want to talk about some solutions. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But So first thing I want to say about the report is it actually does a couple of good things in it. And one thing that did really well, and I think it... I don't, know, I don't even know if they realize it, uh, is a really good job of capturing what I think are really the pain points of why uh, millennials are not investing. Frankly, the matter, it's not just millennials. I think, I think a lot of people, I've worked with all kinds of different people, and the, 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 the frustrations they experience and tell me are similar across all kinds of demographics. Why aren't millennials investing? According to this report, they're not investing because they're scared of it. They feel overwhelmed by the whole process of it. And when they get around to actually trying to make a decision, make an investment decision, they often freeze. Um, they just feel like they don't know how to start. They know they feel like they have to invest, but they don't know how to take the first step. And it's interesting because when the, all the different people I've worked with as an investment coach, I hear this. I see this. They tell me this thing. So the fact of the matter that they were, the report was able to articulate some of these um, pain points, I think was a positive. And that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. And so what the report tries to do is it's identified these pain points, and then it tries to identify solutions and gives, tries to give financial institutions some guidance on how they can better engage millennials. Um, and so they go on to it. I'm gonna, that's pretty much what I want to talk about today and give you some of my takes on what they are thinking. And my kind of issue with the solutions that they identified were they're very, is essentially the messaging around it. It's very consulting, jargony. Um, it's just a lot of wordsmithing. And 
to me, they did a really good job of articulating the pain points, but they did a really lousy job in trying to how in trying to articulate solutions. And a lot of times, the solutions has a lot of consulting speak. It doesn't speak the language of the people they're trying to you know engage with, and uh, <clears throat> and that's to me a lot of when I see when I look at a lot of financial literacy programs out there, they often don't speak to the people who they're trying to who they're trying to go after. And they don't address the pain points that people are, are, are frustrated about when they think about investing. So let's, I just want to talk about what they said in the report and kind of give you my takes on it. And uh, we'll go from there. So there were, I think, four different solutions they came out to it to try to address these things. And the first one they said was that um, banks and uh, financial institutions need to get out there and kind of make investing more of a priority people. They need to kind of create a, some sort of kind of burning platform to get people to think, oh my God, I need to go out and invest. And this is, I think, trying to address that pain point of well, what, what, what millennials are talking about is that is trying to take that first step into investing. And so they talk about trying to make more, if they if you can make investing more of a priority for people, then they will be willing to take that first step. Because they right now they believe that millennials don't want to invest. Um, and so the report essentially recommends that the best way to get people to kind of engage and think about investing is to kind of introduce financial concepts in the classroom. And the whole premise being, and again, is if you teach people in the classroom, maybe at high school, you're planting a seed. You're kind of planting a seed about being more financially responsible that's going to carry them into adulthood. And, you know, at the surface, yeah, like that kind of makes sense. I, and this is something I have always thought, like you should be te- we should be teaching more about finance and money in personal finance in, in school. And I always thought high school was a great place to do it. And I've always believed in that. And it's interesting because here in Ontario, the, I don't know if it's happened, but they're going to be, they're actually going to be in the Ontario high schools here, they're going to be rec- uh, rolling out a financially financial literacy curriculum. Um, it's currently being developed and I think it's going to get rolled out in not too distant future. Again, intuitively, this makes a lot of sense. But the problem is, and again, there's been a lot of empirical analysis done on this, especially in the states where they have rolled out these type programs at schools, is they don't work. And it's essentially uh, the reason why it doesn't work is students, kids, just don't retain the information. It's not a big deal for them. Um, it literally, it's information through one year and out the other. Um, there's been studies that have shown that that followed students, you know, after they finished high school and took uh, like a financial, personal finance course, that they just they didn't remember anything. It just they just didn't remember anything. Uh, and the reality is, during those years, and just you know, picture yourself in high school at the time. It's not the biggest deal. It's not the priority. And it's a, and they, actually the report does a really great job. They gave an, a really great quote by one of the students that they actually interviewed for, for the study. And they said, and I'm kind of paraphrasing and quoting, and they're saying, quote, at 15 years, I'm only thinking three months ahead. But then when I got to 22 years old, I was thinking years ahead. See, I think teaching financial literacy in high schools intuitively makes sense. But the reality is, at that age, most kids just aren't thinking about money-related issues. They're, you know, I just bring it back to me, and at that time, I wasn't thinking about, you know, 
investing in stocks or you know setting up an RSP or all that kind of stuff. I was thinking about what I'm going to be doing on Friday with my friends. Uh, I was thinking about getting into university. I was thinking about just getting marks and passing exams and you know having fun and stuff like that. I wasn't thinking about money. You know, I was thinking about spending money, but I wasn't thinking about you know investing money or saving money or debt management or any of that stuff. Um, You know, we're just, I just don't think people are, I just don't think kids are wired for this stuff at that age. And, you know, at that time, we're, our brains are still developing. We're still, you know, building a lot of cognitive ability in that. And I find the, the time when people really start to get serious about money and being more responsible with money and growing money is usually when they reach a stress point, when there's adversity in their life. Like, for me, I started thinking about money after I got my first job and I got my first regular paycheck. Uh, when I started living on my own, and you know, I had to like save money and like pay rent and stuff like that. Um, that's when money becomes scarce, and I'm kind of paying a lot more attention about it. It's not so much in high school, sitting in a classroom, you know. That's not really where it's gonna where it's gonna crystallize. So they talk about you know make investing a priority, teach it in schools. I don't think that's the best. Pl- Knowing what I know now, I don't think it's the greatest place to be doing it. I think the time to do it is actually I think more when when kids are in their twenties. Maybe it's more in university, or maybe more towards the end of university, or when they get out of university and you know get into the workforce. That's kind of the place maybe in community colleges places like that, that might be a time where people may max out and be more interested in learning. I don't think learning it in high school is going to do anything, and the numbers and the research out there has shown that it doesn't do it. But, again, it's the easy way to do it. Um, The second solution they talked about in terms of getting millennials more interested in investing was um, getting more validation by their social circle. So the report kind of recommends that banks and brokerages kind of get out to where millennials are hanging out and engaging them in those particular environments and telling them, uh, you know, again, making investing a priority. And the kind of the logic that flows behind it is that millennials will tend to listen more, will tend to follow more the advice of what their social circle is going to say more likely than what somebody in a bank or an institution or heck, even their parents or, you know, that kind of thing. The social circle is a greater, and a lot of times now the social circle for millennials, again, according to these consulting reports and stuff like that, is social media. So the recommendations are that banks need to go hang out in Twitter and hang out in Facebook and Instagram and just post and engage with millennials in terms of just being around and being available and sort of try to be get make their way into that social circle so that they can influence them a little bit more. Um, blogs as uh, another example. You see a lot of millennial blogs and you see the banks now they're targeting these millennial blog bloggers or slash who are you know supposed influencers and kind of to spread the message about the good and the bad of, the, of, the, uh, of their banks. Um, ultimately, what's driving this, what they're saying is that technology, we need to love, uh, banks need to uh, leverage technology to get millennials into investing. My issue with it is, yeah, technology can be a really great enabler. Good thing, there's good things and there's bad things about it. But when you break it down, 
when I look at investing, investing is very individual. You're not investing in a group um, per se. It's a very individual, it's a very intimate um, skill set, and it's a very, um, the functions that you're undertaking when making investment decisions are very individual and individualistic. And the reality is we're all in different spaces in our time. We have different priorities and different commitments. And to use technology and kind of appeal to the masses to get people to investing, I think runs counter to really the nature of investing in itself. And it's a big reason um, I personally, as an investment coach, I teach people, but I don't teach large groups of people. I don't go teach in classrooms. I, my, all my teaching is one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, I spend more time with individuals because I can focus and develop their competencies a heck of a lot better than kind of watering it down, watering down the teaching to a whole group of people. Um, I can see the progression of the student. I can, um, I can see their development and I can get more results and I can get people more engaged in investing when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people. And the problem is, again, they're saying you need to go and get your social circle and get into, into, into the millennials' social circles and appeal to those pain points um, through that um, mechanism. And I'm saying it's probably not the best way to do it. Um, you know, investing, from my experience, investing is a path really that you travel on your own. And at the most, you're going to have maybe some people in your family involved. Uh, and it doesn't need validation. You don't need to be, have a social circle validate your investment decisions because the decisions you make are your own and the results and the consequences, good and bad of investment decisions, are your own. It's not the social circle. So to me, I think this recommendation kind of, again, contradicts some of the nature, natural concepts of, of investing. Third recommendation they made was just make it easier. They're saying, you know, one of people's um, fears and annoyances people have with investing is that it's perceived to be hard, difficult. Um, you know, people think, and this is people, what people tell me is that I work with, is they think investing is just, you know, a lot of number crunching, charts, reading charts. Um, formulas and you've got stacks of spreadsheets and Excel spreadsheets running all over the place, learning formulas, complex ratios, math, and that turns a lot of people off. Um, so what the report is suggesting is that they should make it fun. Just take away people's fear factor of investing by just making it more fun and more interesting in that sense. Um, make it more palatable. And again, the tool that this report suggested is, is technology, developing tools, apps, websites, <coughs> excuse me, um, and you know, having nice buttons that you can click and stuff like that. So my response to that is, is I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna tell you something about investing. And, and I, this is as somebody who is, I teach this stuff. If you're gonna, the whole process of investing, you know, evaluating a stock, a bond, an ETF, or a GIC, the concept, the, the process of investing or analyzing or evaluating an investment, it's really dry. It's very repetitive. And you know what? It can be pretty boring. Uh, I just bring it back to my personal situation, how, you know, how, I, uh, how I invest. Um, it's a very iterative process. Every company, every stock, every ETF that I, that I, that I evaluate, I'm doing the same steps. And for those people who have followed my blog and my, uh, 
my mind map videos where I show you how I make investment decisions, how I scratch out my investment decisions. It's a very repetitive process. I'm asking the same questions, I'm applying the same concepts over and over. Um, and, it, it, and to do that, it takes time to learn all those mechanics uh, and, and also the behavioral aspects of evaluating companies so, uh, and evaluating stocks. And so the report suggestion that you can kind of like sugarcoat all this and you know, just hide all this stuff in an app or an Instagram story or do a bunch of podcasts, um, I think it kind of, I think it, it, it's just sugarcoating the realities of investing. Investing is not, it, it, it can be pretty boring, folks. And again, as, this is someone who kind of makes their living teaching this stuff. Um, you know, it's not, it's not all, you know, bells and whistles and, you know, fun stuff, funny fun stuff. There's a lot of elbow grease, a lot of dirty work that has to be done to evaluate and evaluate investment opportunities. It's hard work. And... So what's happening is the industry is trying to make it more palatable, more easy, but the reality is this is hard stuff. It requires a time commitment. And when the people that I work with, the people that I potentially could be working with, I'm upfront with them and I tell them that you, you need a certain time commitment to understand this stuff. And some of it is, is going to be hard at first, but you have to make the commitment and make the effort and make the effort to engage and practice in it. So... The concept of, hey, just making it easier and make a nice bunch of colorful apps or doing a whole bunch of Instagram stories, it's not going to address the issues. It's not going to address people's uh, fear factor with investing. It may sugarcoat it, but it's not going uh, to eliminate the fear factor that they're going to have. Uh, the other thing that the report suggested, and the final thing they asked is suggested was that and this is, again, to take away uh, millennials' fear factor with investing is kind of create environments where they can test drive it, like simulated test uh, trading environments or investing environments where they can practice buying and selling stocks. Um, <coughs> basically create an environment where they can kind of press buttons and click on buttons and drop down list boxes. Um, because by doing that, it'll kind of make people more comfortable with, with investing. Um, my take on it is, you know, it might help people understand the mechanics of, 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 of executing a, a transaction to buy or sell a stock or an ETF. It doesn't really do much to help them to understand the concept of risk, which is a critical concept. Risk and reward, which are critical concepts, which factor quite a bit into making investment decisions. Um, from my experience, um, you know, the best example I could think of this is uh, if you remember in school, again, going back to school, you would do these uh, contests where you would um, invest in a bunch, they, they give you like $100,000 of fake money and you go and you buy a bunch of stocks. And ten, what, uh, to me, those were, the those were the worst ways to learn investing because first of all, it's fake money, so chances are you're gonna make, what happens is in those type of simulations and contests is people take, make decisions that are way beyond their risk tolerance, their true risk tolerance. So they'll go buy derivatives and you know buy ultra, ultra high risk stocks because they wanna get the biggest return and try to win the contest. Um, 
so to me, creating simulations or creating these sanitized investing environments actually I think does more harm than good. And uh, because let's say you get into these environments and you do really well in it, it's really creating a false sense of security. Because ultimately when you start investing with your real money, um, you're not going to be doing the same type of things and your behavior is going to be a lot more different and chances are you're going to make really bad investing decisions. Um, you know, the reality is um, when you invest, you can lose money. And you need to understand that. And chances are you will lose money. You will make bad investment decisions. Some of the best people who are more successful at investing, they do make bad investment decisions. And it's how you behave in those situations which are going to go a long way to tell you how successful you're going to be. So if you create a very sanitized and clean environment which prevents you from making mistakes um, because you're scared of making mistakes, when you get to reality and you start putting your money to work and you start making bad mistakes, because you will, and you don't know how to deal with them, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time dealing with it, and chances are you're going to make more emotional type decisions, and that's going to make your life even worse, and your, your investing decisions and your outcomes are going to be even worse. Um, you know, it sounds great, create a, you know, safe, a safe space for investors, but one of the competencies you need to develop as an investor is to how to deal with failure and how to deal with a bad investment decision. Um, it's an occupational hazard in investing. And I think shielding people from that reality is doing more harm than good. So these were the recommendations that this report came up with. And to me, uh, I think they fall really, really short. And I think they don't address the pain points that people have with investing. Um, and this is kind of the same story we hear over and over again with these financial literacy initiatives. We have messaging which isn't clear, it's not coherent, it's not consistent, it's, 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 it's muddied in uh, consulting jargon, uh, industry jargon that people don't understand. They identify people's pain points but they provide solutions that I don't think are going to do that. And again, it's just going to keep this revolving door of, of these type of solutions I think are just not going to get anywhere, let alone millennials. Um, and so I just wanted to offer my takes because we, I'm just seeing so, you just see this over and over and over again. And people scratch their head and try to figure out why, why aren't these financial literacy programs not working. Um, a lot of it is just not addressing the pain points. The industry just doesn't want to address these pain points. So I just wanted to offer, this is kind of the latest example of, to me, uh, of the industry falling short in addressing people's financial literacy and trying to address financial literacy issues. In my next podcast, in my next episode, you know, it's one thing for me to criticize and be critical of these type of initiatives. It's another thing to come up with solutions. So in the next episode, what I'm going to be doing is actually taking some of these ideas that came out of this report and try to bring it into something, I think, um, that might be a little bit more palatable and stuff that I'm actually implementing myself in my practice. Um, that I have seen helps people become more financially literate, helps people become more engaged in the investing process. And it doesn't just mean millennials, it's Gen, Gen X, boomers, you name it. Um, because we're all working for the same thing. This is not a demographic issue uh, or a struggle or a problem. This is a human issue. 
And so in my next episode, I'm going to start, I'm going to talk about some possible type solutions. And not possible, I am, these are solutions that I am implementing in my practice and that I, you know, I back up and, I, you know, I talk the talk, I walk the walk. That's kind of my attitude. So look out for my, another, my next podcast where I'm going to start talking, where I'm going to kind of build on some of these concepts that were introduced and take it up another level and see what comes out of it. So love to know what your takes are on this. You know, do you agree, disagree with my takes about financial literacy programs and how I think they fall far short and really don't work? Love to hear your takes. Send me an email if you want. Um, you can find me at my website, sageinvestors.ca. Send me an email through there. I'm on Twitter. You can uh, you know, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at sageinvestors. I'm on there sharing content, sharing perspectives by myself, as well as other people who I think really know this investing thing really well. Um, you can follow me through there. I'm on Instagram. I'm on there not all the time, but I kind of drop in on there and drop some takes on uh, some investing takes on there. So you can find me through my handle at uh, Sage Investors Nation, and you can find me on Facebook. I have my Facebook page as well, which is uh, just do a search for Facebook. Uh, do a search for Sage Investors. That's all I got for you this week. So again, look out for my part two of this uh, series on financial literacy, um, and we'll continue on. And in the next episode, we'll offer up some takes and some perspectives and some ideas and solutions um, that could I think could help. Uh, go a long way to addressing um, people's uh, fear factor and intimidation with investing. So thank you very much for listening again. This has been another episode of Stock Talk. My name is Amin Reina of Sage Investors, and we'll catch you again another time. Take care. Bye-bye.